Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Bryce. It's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Obers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is David Frangioni, CEO and publisher of Modern Drummer Magazine. So excited about our new podcast, The Modern Drummer Podcast. This weekly podcast will bring Modern Drummer to life. Sit back and enjoy fresh, fun, and insightful conversations with today's top drummers, producers, musicians, beat makers, and craftsmen. Whether you're a professional, a hobbyist, drummer, musician, programmer, producer, or just love music, this show is for you. Every other week, the Modern Drummer Podcast will feature world-renowned producer, songwriter, and drummer, Narda Michael Walden. Narda Michael Walden's Upbeat is featured exclusively on the Modern Drummer Podcast. Hello, everybody. I'm David Frangioni. I'm here with my co-host, Billy Amendola. Very special podcast featuring a drum hero of both Billy and mine and a great friend, Simon Kirk. Welcome, Simon. Thank you, my friend. So um, your career, I mean, God, you had such an, such an amazing career. Even to this day, you're still so relevant to, to this day. Um, for those that you know may not be familiar, some of the younger generation that may not be familiar, of course, um, Bad Company, go back and listen to every single record that Bad Company has ever made. And you would probably say, oh, I know that song. I know that song. And you know, if you have to define classic rock, Bad Company, you and Bad Company would be right there. I mean, growing up, playing along to, 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 all, to all that music, it, Every single band in the world has played Bad Company songs. And to have those kind of rock, to me, it was one of the first like little heavy, sexy rock stuff mm -hmm. that, that was out that was pop enough to be on the radio, but still not wimpy, still had a little balls to it. So well, you, about, you, know, you just about summed that up, uh, Billy. That's really good. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Okay, thanks for coming. We'll see you soon. <laughs> <laughs> that really is a very good thumbnail 
a sketch of musically of what Bad Company is about because, you know, we're still playing. I mean, the, uh, had it not been for COVID, we would have done a big tour last summer with Rod Stewart. Uh, we were going to go out with, uh, with Rod. Um, but when we formed Bad Company, which was, God, nine, the fall of 73, we had this thing. Uh, it was kind of like a backlash to Glitter because Glitter was very big in the... There was that sort of period between 72 and 74 before Punk came in and kicked everyone's asses. Well, the Glitter was very big. You had Gary Glitter, you had Bowie, you had T-Rex, Sweet. You know, it was all... And, and it was a bit, you know, fairy dust and glitter. And Bad Company set out to really kind of turn that little ship around. And we wanted to get back to being more bluesy and earthy, but still playing songs. Uh, and I think that was the strength of, of Bad Company. Which, number one, we had four very good players who were veterans, even, at, you know, in their mid-20s, having come from three uh, very well-known bands. Um, we had a great singer. And a great songwriter, Paul Rogers is, you know, one of the best ever. Absolutely. And, uh, and just sure. set out, he just set out to write great songs and, um, you know, Feel Like Making Love, which is still, believe it or not, the, the number one um, streaming song of Bad Company, came out of two songs. It was a little, a little country riff, like uh, D to G, D to G. And then Paul had this... Uh, Paul Rogers had this bomb, 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 and he couldn't find anything to do with it, you know. And and uh, I suggested they marry the two, uh, you know, to become this uh, feel like making love. So, yeah, we just set out to play songs, but with a bit of a sexy swagger, you know. Yeah, you no, guys, it was great. You guys and, were on Swan Song, and right. so there's obviously a connection to Led Zeppelin. How did that all happen? Oh, that was that's great. Um, well, thanks to our road managers, Free and uh, had a great road manager from New Zealand called Graham White. And he had a, a friend who was road manager. One of the road managers was Zeppelin, uh, Clive Coulson. And when, when Free broke up uh, and Bad Company formed in the fall of 73, um, we were looking for a manager. And uh, Graham said, well, you know, my mate Clive wrote is for Zeppelin. And I hear that they're uh, starting uh, their own record label. Well, regardless of whether they had their own label or not, we knew that Zeppelin were the biggest band in the world at the time. And we'd heard about this legendary guy called Peter Grant. So typical Paul Rogers, you know, he called him up. He got Paul, um, he got Peter's phone number and called him. And he said, you know, I, you know, we've got a band together. And, and Peter said, I know. I said, what? Yeah, it's all over the industry that you're putting a band together with Mick Ralphs from Mott the Hoople. So I know all about it. Wow. This guy, you know, has got his finger on the pulse. So in answer to your question, Dave, uh, he, he came down to see us rehearse. Um, and very clever. He was very clever. He drove across England because it was quite a long way from where, where Paul was living, where we were rehearsing. And he was late. He was so late. We were worried maybe they had an accident, la, la, la. And we kept playing the same eight or nine songs that we had. And he finally walked in about two hours late. And we said, oh, God, Peter, you're, everything all right? He said, oh, yeah, everything's all right. 
I said, well, well, we'll play the songs for you. He said, it's all right. I've heard them. I said, what do you mean? I've been sitting out in the car park with my windows down, listening to you through the, the door. Because <laughs> <laughs> he knew we'd be a bit nervous. He knew that his presence might intimidate us or whatever. Uh, and he said, I love what I hear, you know. So would you like to be on Zeppelin's uh, record label? And we said, we'll have to, we'll have to have time to think about it. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, Peter, Peter had such a reputation. Peter Grant had such a reputation. So I could see how, you know, how old are you at now at, at this period of time? You're in your twenties, right? 24. Yeah. So yeah, and Peter, had, Peter was a huge, you know, he was such a big guy and he had such a reputation as being like, you know, tyrant <laughs> he was he was scary tough yeah, was i've scary. read his book and and yeah. you know he, he that's like well well deserved reputation well he came from old school you know uh, don arden was the other big guy in town at the time the um early 60s late 50s early 60s and they kind of you know they were part of i guess you could say the underworld um they had ties they had affiliations uh, a bit like, you know, our Italian-American friends. <laughs> no offense, David. Our Italian Billy's American Italian, too. <laughs> Billy's Italian, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, uh, but the thing about Peter was, believe it or not, he was almost my age. He was actually, he was born in 19, he, he died at 1695, so he was born in 1930. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but my, my point is, yes, he was fearsome. He had very good uh, business acumen and he coupled it with this ferocious persona. You know, he used to be a wrestler. Um, and, and, a, and a bodyguard or a, a bodyguard. He had a great story about Little Richard. Little Richard was a pain in the neck. <laughs> he, he'd had to, he had to get Little Richard. He was in England. And he went up to knock on Little Richard's door. He was looking after him. And Little Richard said, I'm not coming. I'm not coming. I don't feel well. I haven't been paid. You know, I'm fed up with this. I'm not going to appear. And Peter went into the room and he said, Little, uh, you know, Richard, Mr. Pennyman, he called him Mr. Pennyman. We have to do this gig. Otherwise, I'm in trouble. And Richard was throwing the tantrum. So Peter put him in a little headlock, got him on the ground, rolled him up in the carpet put the carpet over his shoulder and took little Richard entwined in this carpet, put him in the back of the van and drove him to the club where he did the, the gig. Um, and, uh, you know, that was Peter's way of saying, come on, shut up and get, let's get on with this. And You're doing it, whether you want to or not. Whether you like it or not, yeah. Right. I want to they say action speaks louder than words. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want to jump back just a dot. Um, and talk about free a little bit, because but that but that but air filled, you know, air drumming yeah. fills in the in the whole world. And you know, sometimes I'm on the side of the stage, and once or twice you you yeah. did the role slightly different, and and now you know that I do that, and you look over at me. Oh, you know, <laughs> it's funny you just say that because we were down in Florida, we we played bad company play every now and again. And Nico, Nico McBrain was in the audience, you know, giving him a, a pass and whatever and laminate. Because I love it. Nico is such a good drummer. He's and great. He, great and guy. I, we did all right now. And I didn't do the... <laughs> and the first thing he says when he comes into the dressing room, he said, you 
I've been waiting for years to hear that. And you do the, you do the, so I look that, that drum fill, I had what? One bar. It was like a one bar to do. And, you know, we hit the E, the five of the, of the, the thing, it just came. I mean, there was no, I didn't even have to think about it. It just popped out. And, and, um, you know, it's become this, it's become this iconic little drum fill. Um, which of course I do religiously now every time we do it. <laughs> yeah, and that's and we're talking about freeze all right now, which is yeah. talking about classic rock, one of the greatest. I mean, to this day, that is one of the greatest songs ever recorded. Thank you, man. Thank you. Oh, originally I did it in eights, eights on the hi hat, you know, eights. And after take sixteen or seventeen because we were obviously a lot younger. This was 51 years ago. Wow. It just didn't feel right. It just didn't... It just didn't swing. So I started doing fours, and um, the fours on the hi-hat, and it just, it, it's been like that ever since. It just, it just eased, it sort of uh, opened up the song, if you will, doing uh, that little... Tico, Tico Torres does a lot of fours uh, with Bon Jovi. You very rarely do eights, and it just opens up the uh, the kit in a way that doing eights just doesn't do for me. It gave it a more rock feel. Yeah, you yeah. know, like just that one subtle change on the hi hat was True. was all the difference. But yet, it didn't it didn't overpower it and make it too rock, if you will. But it was just like it. Just, you're right. It like the groove. If, if I imagine that with eighths, it's like that groove would really change how I hear it. It does change. It, it kind of constricts it in a way, David. Uh, um, Charlie came up with this thing. He's been doing it for years. And when I first saw it, when he's lifting his right hand, when he hits the, the, the snare with the left. Right. And um, he said, I said, Charlie, where? because it allows the snare to come through. It's not being choked by, you know, the hi-hat. Uh, with the right hand. I said, Charlie, where, where did that come from? He says, you know, Keith and Mick, they do these bloody songs so fast. Uh, and it, I think, I believe it was Shattered. You know, and after a couple of lines of various substances, poor old Charlie couldn't keep up. So he was doing Now you try doing that with eights all the way through and your muscles lock up. So Charlie invented this way of like a little valve, if you will, you know, where it opens up and allows him to hit the snare. And he said he's been doing it ever since. And uh, uh, I do it now and again, um, just just for practice. It's yeah. No, and, and, and visually, it's a great it's, a, you know, that became yeah. his like trademark visual. But it gives that space, as we always talk about, the less notes, the more notes, you know, yeah. because of that space. And the free groove, if you take the free groove we're talking about, can't get enough of your love is kind of a similar approach, right? With the quarters. Yeah. I never thought of that, Dave. That's that's very good. I, yeah, it has that shuffle swing. Well, it started out with fours on the hi-hat, and as the, the song progresses, and it's still one of the best performances I think I ever did, for me, without being big-headed, I'm just being factual. The, the, if you listen to the last minute or 90 seconds of the song i'm doing the you know the shuffle and not the uh uh not the the fours on the hi-hat so it kind of opened it up 
And I'm going back to Sonny Freeman and Mick Fleetwood, who I believe is still the king of the shuffle. Uh, Mick's a wonderful, great, does a great shuffler. Uh, that do, do, the bounce, the bounce uh, on on the uh, ride symbol. So, but that that's a, I never thought of that before, David. Uh, yeah, it was kind of like the swing version of uh, All Right Now. Yeah, I like that. And, and I love the fills at the end. They're, they're right in the right spot with the symbol crashes. That's one of my favorite favorite uh, bad company song oh actually. my god i played that song growing up as a drummer playing covers in every band i was in and uh you know that, that that's the drumming in it the song all of it completely iconic to this day i see kids that uh, you know are are what my, you know in their teens like when i was in my teens playing the song and they still play that song and it's like and you know so it's like these generations are discovering it fresh yeah. and it has and billy isn't it incredible that it still has the exact same effect it's so no I, I i listened i had uh while i was getting uh prepared i had uh, bad company playing in the background greatest hits and i and you know it comes up, you know, Bad Company, it's, 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 it's embedded in my head, but I haven't heard some of the songs in a while. And today, that song, I was, I had to stop what I was doing and air drumming. And it was like, yeah, brings you back. <laughs> and all Ludwig, right? Because I, when I was, as I followed you, it all, I always see you behind a Ludwig kit. Are you still playing Ludwig? No, uh, that's a good question. I've had several brands over the years. I, I got a Ludwig kit because Bonzo, insisted that i get one uh, i was playing with free at the time i was playing a mixture i had a lovely old gretsch kit which um got stolen but that's another story and then george Heyman, and no one's heard no one knows much about george Heyman. it was a Heyman kit but only a four ply shells gold and they were wonderful uh, they were wonderful drums but when free broke up and and we hooked up with um when we formed Bad Company and hooked up with Zeppelin, Bonzo kind of took me under his wing, even though we were only a year, uh, not even a, a month uh, between us in terms of uh, uh, age. He was born in, um, he's a Gemini, so he's born in June of 1949. I was born in July. But he made, you know, he became my, like my big brother. And he said, we got to get you a decent fucking kit. He said, he said, that wimpy, I forget his actual words, but it wasn't very complimentary. That wimpy kit you were playing. Uh, I want to get you a 26 by 14 Ludwig. And I said, yeah, John, I just can't get him. He said, I'll call Bill myself. You know, he called up the head of Ludwig in Chicago. And I heard him on the phone. He said, I want, I've got a, a young drummer here, Simon Kirk. I want the same kit sent over next week. This is from Chicago, Illinois. To London next week, um, and you hear all this. Well, John, I don't think we can do it. He said, Well, then cancel my account. I said, What? <laughs> well, we'll send Peter, yeah, we'll send Mr. Grant. Uh, so lo and behold, about a week later, uh, I got my brand, brand new Ludwig kit, and I had that kit uh, for quite a while. Um, I still have it in my basement here next door, next door to my studio. I've refurbished it and done it up. It's enormous. I mean, the, the, the rack tom is 14 by 10. And then I've got 16 by 16 floor and 18 by 16 floor. It's just ridiculous. Um, but I, I'll never get rid of it. I, wow. Now, is that the kit that you used on most of those recordings? Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow, that's great. And I still have the, I still use the, the Black Beauty snare, which has been on every Bad Company song. I still use it to this day. It's on my little DW kit. I, I play DW now, but I don't tell, I don't tell John Good that I use, that I use, um, you know. Too my, late. Too oh, late. John, no, I love the look of your drums, but uh, I'll be buried with my Black Beauty. DW, yeah, sure great. Shout drums. out to oh, I love DW, are wonderful. Yeah. And it's fun. And Peisty symbols? And Peisty, I've used Peisty for nearly 50 years. Because John, once again, Bonzo was the one who said, you've got to use Peisty, you've got to use Peisty. So when we toured in, uh, I don't know if any of you have been to the Peisty factory in, in Switzerland. Uh, no. I went because, you know, we were playing in, uh, uh, in Zurich. And uh, the, one of the, the reps came and said, well, you must come to the, uh, the factory. Boys, don't ever go. Uh, apart from going to the Harley Davidson factory in Milwaukee with a hangover, it's the noisiest tour of any factory you'll ever hear. And, and my head was spinning, having been through all the roods and the, the crashes and the whatever. And right at the end of the tour, of the pasty tour in the factory, there's the biggest gong ever made. Right, right, I heard about it. You heard that. of it? And yeah. apparently when Bonzo hit it, it nearly came <laughs> off the, it nearly caused the whole building to collapse. But I gave it I'm a surprised gentleman. the gong survived Bonzo. <laughs> Yeah, he could. He, I'm sure. Yeah, he used to always he just hit it with his punch it with his hand. It was like, yeah, my God, yeah. and that solo, of course, Moby Dick with his hands. So now, let's touch a little bit um, about the All Stars, Ringo and the All Stars, because yeah. I think you did three tours. Was it three? three well, yeah, four, four tours. Yeah, four tours. Yeah. How did how did that all come about? I, I know he was going after drummers that had hits, and I know I I enjoy, I saw you all four times and. You know, watching you guys do all right now, and you doing the vocal. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, I got involved with the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. Uh, you probably know about it. You know, the, people pay a lot of money to hang out with people like me, and it's actually very rewarding um, to teach. And at the end of the first camp, it was run by a guy called David Fishoff, and um, he said, "Listen." Um, you know, I just come out of rehab. It's it's an open secret that I I had trouble with substance abuse, and I just come out of rehab. And David came to me at the end of the first camp and said, "Hey, um, Ringo's looking for someone, uh, another drummer, to do a tour with." You know, Levon had passed. They they were doing stuff with the band, so Levon and De and Jim Keltner they both uh, jumped ship and gone elsewhere. So I got a call from Ringo uh, a few days later, you know, hey, are you up for this? Uh, I know about, you know, uh, you know, I had my trouble with drinking drugs, la, la, la. Do you think you can do it? And it was a big deal for me because Bad Company wasn't doing anything. Um, and yeah, I said, you know what, I'd, I'd love to, especially when I heard that Jack Bruce was playing bass, Peter Frampton was playing guitar, uh, Gary Brooker was on keyboards, you know, Mark Rivera was sax, and, and it was just a great band. Um, and they flew me out to L.A., and, and we, we never really looked back. I, some of the best days of my life were in that band. Yeah, that, that was great. And obviously you did an excellent job because he called you back three more times. Yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> you passed the audition. <laughs> he said, he said, well, you play like me with muscles. And and it's true. We, we had, um, we, we had, you know, like Ringo was a big influence on me because he was the generation before me. I loved his simplicity. I loved his feel. And we, we meshed uh, very well together. The only thing, you know, we, we, when we set out the first rehearsal, I'd say, well, how do we trade fills? You know, if I'm going to do, he said, well, I'll go first and then you're next and so on. And we didn't, I don't think once we ever had a train wreck um, because he would look at me and get, like nod. And so I would do, you know, my one or two bar fill and then he'd take the next one. But our styles meshed very well indeed. Yeah, it was, and that was a great. That's gig. really incredible. Don't you think Billy? Because when you think of Simon's work, it's, it's heavier than Ringo's, even though it's, yeah. it's groove oriented and it's like song perfect playing. It's, it's just, you know, it's that, that really shows the versatility that you're playing is, is able to adapt in, in, in a little bit lighter environment than a bad company environment. And, uh, but, yeah you know, but still yeah. like player perfect. I mean, that's, uh, did you have to adjust for that or was that natural for you? It, you know, it was kind of a, a nice relief. Um, you know, bad company has always been quite loud and, and free. I mean, we were, I was, I was a bit of a basher, uh, for want of a better word. And, and then I kind of refined my style as bad company got a, you know, a little older. And we started doing ballads, Ready for Love, you know, was more of a shooting star, was, was more of a ballad. So it didn't take much for me to dial it down. And, and working with another drummer, obviously you've got to be much more in tune with what everyone's doing. Otherwise it's going to sound terrible. And, and, and so, and I was playing with a drummer who I really respected and I wasn't going to jump all over him. Besides, he would have given me that liver pud. <laughs> hey, what do you what do you think you're doing? <laughs> never, never like that. <laughs> so yeah, and and then um, we went all over Europe. There was some lovely story. Ringo was was great. I mean, it was so good to work with him, and and you know he he uh, told us about the Beatles and how Paul still owed owed him five pounds for petrol, and um, you know with interest now it was about seventy thousand. Uh, 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 but it was, you know, getting getting to work with Todd Rundgren when Peter Frampton left. With uh, Todd Rundgren came in. Um, Jack you, was, was was Mark Farner one? What did you do? One no, he was the band before. I never got. I worked with Mark in um, a couple of rock camps, but never. Yeah. Ago, no. Yeah, the camps were fun. Uh, we did. You were gracious enough to be my uh, when I hosted to be my guest a couple of times, and uh, yep. we did some clinics and we got yeah. to play a little. Now I could see why Ringo, because Ringo is like a clock. He's like playing with a metronome, and you're the same exact way. You are so rock solid, mm. you know, and you don't. That bad company stuff was that that wasn't recorded with clicks, right? No, I never, I did work with a clique a little later on in the 80s. I, I don't like working with them. I, I honestly don't mind starting the first couple of bars with a clique, but it, they impede my, you know, fills. Very Natural fill, right. Um, no, they're, they're, uh, I, I don't really like them. Oddly enough, I'm doing a session now with a, a, a lady in England 
and they sent me over a track to play, you know, all the, the, the stems to play, and there was no click. And I was like, oh, wow. Uh, but I did it, you know, it was okay. Um, but before we leave Ringo, I, have to, I don't know if you know this, but Ringo's left-handed. Yes. So yeah. he plays, he leads with his left, which on a right-handed kit is really weird. So when he go, does a fill, you know, those lovely language slow fills he did on Sergeant Pepper, he's leading with his left. Um, and so when he goes around the kit, he, he can't come out with the right hand on the right symbol. It's the weirdest thing. He does it like, and then he hit it with his left hand and right foot. Right. And before, before everyone, now it's pretty well known because he, he, we, we've spoken about it, he's spoken about it, everybody talks about it now. But back in the day, watching the Beatles in all those early clips, he was the first guy, first of all, he was playing match grip, and he was the first guy to smash the cymbal, hit the crash cymbal with his left hand. And I used to go, not only visually did it look good, I used to go, wow, because that was the first time I ever saw somebody. And then as time went on, we all realized he had to do it that way because yeah. he, couldn't, he couldn't come over this way. <laughs> yeah. But we love him. He's, he's yeah. you know, we all love him. He's I'm the only drummer on this podcast that hasn't played on stage with Ringo. <laughs> well, I got to play twice with the... I got to play two times with the All Stars. I played percussion, but that that yeah, I mean Simon can tell you. Any anybody you speak to, you know, playing Jim Kelton always used to say because Jim's not a big fan, even though he's kind of known for playing double drums with everybody because of uh, Mad Dogs and and Bangladesh, which is where he first met Ringo. He hates playing double drums. Yeah. So the only one he really likes playing double drums with is is Ringo because. He always used to say, man, there's no feeling like just playing along with Ringo. So mm -hmm. for me, I was playing percussion and I got to do it two times. Hopefully, uh, you know, I, I, I'll get to do it again if we ever everybody gets out and plays. But um, yeah, there's no feeling in the world like being on stage with Ringo. And I tease Ringo, like like Simon said, being on stage with um, Todd and and uh, Hamish Stewart, who I grew up on Average White Band. So, you know, he Hamish gave me a wink. I used to watch Average White Band recording and Hamish would turn around as I'm on stage and wink at me. And I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. <laughs> it's it's amazing. So Simon, bad company, when things get back to normal, you guys are gonna go out again? Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we, I mean, we, all, we have a string of dates already lined up uh, for the late summer, early fall obviously uh on hold i mean ringo's already going out he's he's been booked in uh, several casinos up here in the northeast um i believe around june july uh but once again i think it's all it's all on on hold tentative uh we're gonna see how how this thing plays out i was speaking with mick mick fleetwood a couple of months ago and he said an interesting thing he said you know, there's about 65 bands, you know, dying to break that tape and get out and, you know, <laughs> get out there. And why don't we all go, like, do a big package tour, like Aerosmith, Fleetwood Mac and Bad Company, you know, and Sting. And then, you know, then other people, you go out as a package group because how are we going to do this? I mean, right. we're going to go out and... and vacuum up all the money as we go there's going to be no one no pickings for anyone and i remember that that i i my first package tour with free 
how about this for a lineup? Was Free, The Crazy World of Arthur Brown, Joe Cocker, The Small Faces, and The Who. Wow. All on one bill. Amazing. Great, man. It was, we only had 20 minutes, but because we were the, the rookies. But I thought, wouldn't that be wonderful? It'll never happen, but it would just be great to see all those bands on one bill going from city to city. Um, well, if things if things keep up, you, you, the music business business may have to do like the sports company. Everybody may have to live together and quarantine together, and then you <laughs> go out and, and do something. And even if it's film, you know, a lot of people. I, I spoke to a couple of major. Uh, booking agents and and um they say that even after we go back to whatever normal is um there's no reason why they're not going to have pay-per-view type shows and give you the option because the technology only going to get better and better for that sure. and and then you don't have to worry about getting a seat you know you could buy a ticket five minutes before the show starts so there's some benefits to that you know of course there's nothing like going out and seeing a live show right. but having right. the option now may, may that may be the new norm well, we'll um, see. We'll see. I, I mean, there's pluses and minuses for that, Billy. Um, yeah, you can't beat a, a, a live crowd. But as you say, the, the, the needle is shifted now and, and we're entering a phase uh, which I'm wondering if we'll ever get back to how we remember normal in terms of being able to see people. And I mean, I, I've seen a couple of virtual shows. It's kind of nice. You know, you can get up and get a grab of whatever you drink or, you know, you can turn the phone off. You don't have to find parking and spend $50 on a <laughs> shitty t-shirt. You know, it's actually... Uh, there are some benefits. Yeah, there there are some benefits. And, you and, you, and, you, and it's all over the world. When we, we did the Modern Drama Festival in September, with our tribute to Neil Peart and, you know, uh, people from all over the world. It wasn't like it was only in, if you lived in this city, you know, you could come like when we had the festival it was in New Jersey. So you had to come to New Jersey or you had to wait till the DVD came out. But now doing it virtual, it was a lot of work, right, David? I mean, you'd agree it's, it's, it's not easy. It was, um, it was a tremendous amount of work, but but the outcome of it was that it was a really beautiful, entertaining very multi-dimensional production where you know it's fitting tribute to neil which was very touching and very right. appropriate to pay homage to it yeah. was very it had great drumming of course it had storylines it had special guests ringo you know and which was amazing to have you know talk about gracious and all of these various things but putting it together uh, you know, and it's a little different than if a band were to just do a live stream because it's, you know, it's one event and it's very focused, but this was collecting, uh, you know, different clips and pieces from all over the world, from all of the drummers involved, which was like over 30, uh, and then putting it all together where every drummer is doing their own thing. There wasn't like a storyboard and, you know, each drummer had a segment of it. This was kind of random but it worked out great. Everybody really came through. And when you put it all together, it was very, very synchronized in terms of the theme and watching it. It didn't feel like, uh, you know, uh, a ransom note, you know, where every single thing was like, where did that, you know, oh, well, where, where did that go? Where did that come from? It's everything was very, very seamless, uh, a tremendous amount of work, but worth it because now drummers everywhere, anytime can watch the festival. And also, we, you know, we, we were fortunate to raise a lot of money for Neil's charity, which was 
all the money went to charity. So that was, that was a really, I was, we were all happy about that. That was a cool, that was a good thing. Didn't Neil used to have a Buddy Rich festival every year? Didn't he host it? Uh, not every year. He, he was, uh, he was, he was, he, he did those Buddy albums, the Burning for Buddy albums. Oh, um, okay. And he was a huge Buddy Rich fan and he did a couple of the shows. Uh -huh. um, okay. But yeah, not, not, not all the time. Cause it's, that's a lot of, it's a lot of work putting shows on. <laughs> As you Simon, know. we'd love you to be involved in our, our next festival. Sure. Now, listen, I don't ask me to do solo. I, you know, people have asked me, hey, you know, you do drum solos and stuff. I'm not uh, Vinny Colauta or Dave Weckl, those guys. You know, I did a thing years ago with Chad Smith, a very good friend of mine. But there was also a couple of Latin players and they were dynamite. Oh, and Prince's drummer, the guy who sadly passed away a couple of years oh, ago. Oh, John Blackwell. Oh, my Lord. He was just wonderful. So, you know, when I had to get up and do my little three-minute party piece, I took a leap from Ginger Baker's. Uh, he, when Ginger did his solo, when, when Cream reformed for those few gigs, his solo was in 6-8. And it was such a great tempo to do a, a solo in instead of a straightforward two you know, two and four. So I, you know, I managed to do, I, I got, I got, you know, I did okay, but I'm not a very good technician, but yeah. And then Chad joined me and we did a little drum battle. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's very, I kind of enjoyed it, but don't put me in with those guys. <laughs> no, you would, so, we, you uh, would, we would have you just because to be you, we would want you to be you. Okay. I'm, uh, include me in. Well, it, it's an honor. And and the fact is, there's so much to learn drumming. You know, it's an interesting instrument, right? Because you can, yeah. it's like, it's growing my whole life as a drummer from literally two years old. I learned over time as you start meeting more drummers and, you know, playing gigs and all that stuff. There's like, there's drummers that are, are great at playing the drums, but they've never played on songs. They just literally just play the drums and there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Oh. And then there's drumming that's iconic and that's on songs, but mm. it's not about like 20 minute drum solos and tricks and all of that stuff. And so it's like, it's such an interesting instrument that we are all in love with here and that we've committed our life through and to that you mm. can just play the drums and be happy and entertain people. And, and it's just about the drums but yet you can play the drums as part of an instrument like most bass players, right? That instrument's like almost exclusively, right. you know, bottom end, you know, backbeat kind of thing. There's only a handful of Jockos and, and those kinds of instrument, yeah, you know, those yeah. kind of players. But the majority of bass players, it's like a very straightforward lane. But with drumming, it's so vast and you can, and, and each lane of drumming is so important. And, and so, you know, it's, yeah, the, the, the drum hero guys that do both, that, that are, you know, extravagant, extraordinary soloists, and they play on songs, you know, the Daves and the Vinnies and, yeah. you know, Neil, what Neil did, like, you know, that lane, you know, it's very, it's very glamorous and very hard to achieve, but man, I listen to your rock grooves and they're just as extraordinary. You know, once you understand well, you know, the power of music, you understand what that is. Go, go play it. Go put the song on and play it. It's like, 
it's like, whoa, wait a second. That doesn't sound anything like what he played. And it's not because there's 300 notes a second. It's because there's just so, it's so, it's so advanced to be able to play a pocket perfect groove from nothing. Like you hear a song, there's no drums. You put the drums on, then you hear the song with the drums, it becomes iconic. Yeah. That's what you create. Well, That's incredible. You, provide, you, you really have to provide a foundation for the others. You know, I look at it like a platform and really a, 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 a song drummer, um, take away Rush, who are very akin to Cream in that they were a trio, they were virtuosos in their instruments. They didn't play songs per se. Uh, that was just their way, and they did it extremely well. I mean, Neil was one of the, the great, great drummers, and Geddy Lee. Yeah, I mean, they were just an amazing player. But my my groove is such, and I took a, a leaf out of Ringo's book and Charlie Watts's book and Levon Helm's book, is that we provide a, a bedrock for the others to sit on, and um, and that's just my job. And, and I learned a lot from Buddy Rich. Uh, well, duh. I mean, he was one of the all-time great big band drummers. But when I saw him uh, in a small club in London, you know, it was a 20-piece orchestra or whatever, and of course he ruled the roost, but he laid back when a sax solo came forward or a piano, so when a piano, you know, he laid right back and kept that, but really way back. And then all of a sudden, you know, he would punctuate every eight or 16, 32 bars with a flam or some amazing And that, that light and shade, Buddy was the first drummer that I learned that from, that uh, you didn't have to be bombastic between the eyes all the time. So that when he did become bombastic, you went, what the? He was just, he was unbelievable drummer. Yeah, buddy, people are still trying to to this day figure out some of the stuff that buddy oh, did. But I want to give you, I want to, I want to say something, you know, about you. It's like you don't get the credit um, for really, you know, there's drummers. I say this all the time. There's drummers that that play drums, and then there's drummers that influence a whole generation of drummers. And you don't get the credit you deserve for being one of those drummers who really influenced oh. so many drummers to play to play drums so many people to play drums because bad company you know was so huge and all those songs were on the radio so you taught a lot of people and inspired a lot of people who want to play drums so thank you i'm just passing it on you know great thing before we let before we let you go i, I it's it's kind of not drum related but uh being that we were talking about ringo i remember you telling me a story um about George Harrison when you went to his house at Friar Park for New yeah. Year's Eve. So yeah. in, 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 in a short version of that, can you can you tell us that story? I think oh. they would, be, they oh, would yeah. like to get that. Yeah. Um, I went to a New Year's Eve party. Uh, me and Mick Rouse, we knew George pretty well. We, we were neighbors. So he invited us to this. I mean, his house was just stunningly big and enormous and wonderful. And and a couple of things happened that night, but if you want the short version, uh, George came up to me around about, I don't know, one in the morning, you know, we were all still bopping. He said, hey, you want to, I want to show you something. I said, whoa, okay, so you come with me. And we sort of, we sort of left the throng 
that were in the main living room. And we went down this big hallway. And of course, there were all the Beatles, there were uh, platinum and gold albums, She Loves You, all the way up to Abbey Road, la la la. And we went into the kitchen, this huge kitchen. And we he went over into the corner of the kitchen and there was like set in, set in the, the flagstones was this big ring, like a big brass ring. And he lifted it up and I'm thought, what the hell's going on? And he lifted and the whole flagstone comes up like a 90 degree angle. And, and I hear this lapping of water. And I thought, <laughs> I thought maybe he thinks I'm a plumber, not a drummer. And he's, <laughs> he's got some leak that he wants me to fix. I don't know. And he beckons me over and there's a ladder. So he's gone down, he's got a little flashlight, he's gone down this little ladder and he's beckoning me to follow. No words. And I'm thinking, he's a beetle. What am I going to do? This is his house. So I went down this ladder and there's a little rowboat that's tied to the bottom of this ladder, little, you know, uh, that you row. And he said, get in. Oh, what is this? So we get in and he casts off and he starts rowing. And you can hear the party above us, you know, the, the whatever they're playing. You can hear the scuffle of the feet and whatever. And then he hits a switch somewhere in, in the wall and all these lights come on. And we're in, um, we're rowing across an underground lake, <laughs> a man-made lake that is under his house. And set, set in the, all around this lake, which is probably 200 feet across, were all these aquariums with fish, with, with beautiful uh, tropical fish in, 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 in this. I'm getting chills just uh, in recounting this again. And he looks at me and we're, we're rowing. I'm in this little rowboat with a beetle. He goes, nice, isn't it? <laughs> the understatement I, of all time. Nice. I, I love that story. I, I love that story. Before we let you go, um, what, what do you have coming up? Like, I know we can, you know, you're not touring. Can we, can we um, talk a little bit about what you sent me a couple of tracks to listen to? Yeah. They yeah, were fantastic. I, they were fantastic. I've actually been, I've never been more busy doing nothing. And, and <laughs> I, I've done, I did a, an album with this band called Lone Rider a couple of years ago, this singer songwriter and this guitar player. Uh, Steve Overland and Steve Morris, and they're wonderful players. And they called me at the beginning, uh, around about February, and they said they have some more tracks, you know, would I be interested? And I, and I love it. And I don't really need, you know, it's not like I'm poor in the poor house. And so they said, look, we, we don't really have much that much money. And I said, oh, don't worry about it, you know. And they sent me 15 <laughs> tracks. <laughs> I thought, hang on, guys, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, the two that I sent you, Billy, um, are from the new album. And they it's really it was just great to be able to play again and, and play this sort of heavy but tasteful music. Uh, and they're called Lone Rider. Look out for them. I've also done several sessions with people in Europe. I'm doing a session with a guy a Turkish singer from Istanbul, who's amazing. He sounds like a young Paul Rogers. Um, and I'm doing now something with a lady called Harriet Webb, who was a backup singer for Lena Cohen. And she's got this beautiful 
Sarah McLaughlin type voice. So I'm having to, I'm a bit like Chad Smith. I mean, Chad does sessions with the Dixie Chicks and he did Ozzy Osbourne. He says, we're chameleons. You know, Chad can play light, but he can also play wonderfully heavy. Um, so I, I'm lucky in that my style lends itself to various, I'm kind of a, a, a chameleon, like I said, like Zellig, like Woody Allen Zellig. I can adapt to a lot of different, uh, a different. but don't give me anything in 7-4. I just fall apart. Nah, that, no, no, those, those tracks that you sent me, they were, they were phenomenal. I, 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 I can't wait for everybody to hear those. One last thing, um, your, your solo records, because you make solo records, and, and has being a multi-instrumentalist, that, that, of course, obviously made your drumming even you more aware of playing for songs because you know yeah. how important it is the song is so people should check out your solo albums i just wanted to mention al jackson jr and levon helm and the, the al jackson is my guru you know he's my number one influence and i learned only recently that he played piano he played bass he wasn't just a drummer per se and we know about Levon. Levon was a wonderful singer, songwriter. He played guitar, mandolin. Um, so in a way, to be able to play other instruments, because I play guitar and piano as well, has helped me understand to navigate through certain tracks. But it kind of, when I went, when I do solo shows, people are not quite sure what to <laughs> expect when I walk on stage. You know, I, I like to hang a pair of drumsticks up on the, a hook somewhere say there's no no drums tonight i'm going to be playing you know so but it, it has helped me understand songs and and i've been playing guitar as long as i've been playing drums uh, which is nearly 60 years now so it's hard to believe now, this is great well thank you so much thank you guys thank you everybody thank you until soon. next time simon kirk william mandola the modern drummer podcast stay safe
All right, it's time for the shop talk section of the episode. This week, we are going to finish up our look at the Doc Sweeney Pure Series snare drums. If you recall, in the past two episodes, we started out looking at the Elm, and then last week, we checked out the Oak. And then this week, we're going to finish up with what I thought was the most all-purpose of the three, the Pure Ash. So a little background on the series. All of these drums are 5.5 by 14. They are steam-bent, single-plank um, wood. The bearing edges are cut to 45 degrees with a little bit of a rounded apex. Um, they all, instead of having reinforcement rings glued into the shell, which is kind of a standard process for a lot of manufacturers, they actually mill the reinforcement area uh, directly into the wood. So you get a thicker piece of wood around the bearing edges and then thinner around the body of the shell. Uh, all of that is done to make sure that you have a thin shell that has a lot of uh, sustain, but it's also stable by having the thicker edge. Um, and also you're getting a very pure, which is what they're called pure series, sound of the timber itself. So uh, these are really, you know, three very high quality, very special drums. Each one of them I felt could do a lot of things, but then you could hear the distinct difference of the actual timber of the wood, which was very cool to experiment. So go back and look, listen to the other two um, from the previous two episodes, but a little bit about the drum we're going to feature this week. It has a Remo Diplomat Skin Tone Batterhead, which is a 5mm film laminated with a 3mm polyspun fiber on top. Uh, that's specifically designed to give you a little bit of a warmer tone and a softer attack. The bottom head was a standard uh, Remo Ambassador Hazy Side. Um, these drums come with chromophore brass single point lugs. They have uh, Sling Run style triple flange hoops, which have the inward facing upper flange. Um, the throw-off is Doc Sweeney's custom DS1, which looks like a big version of the lug. Um, gives the whole drum kind of a nice cohesive look. Um, so let's check out the Pure Ash. Um, this again, uh, this was a very all-purpose sounding drum, very warm, full, uh, balanced overtones. It's similar to Maple with maybe a little bit more punch and a little bit more control. Um, I would say if there's one drum to have for pretty much everything, this could probably do it. So here we go. This is the Doc Sweeney Pure Series Ash Stair Drum. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
Thank you, everybody, for watching this week's Modern Drummer Podcast. Stay tuned for next week's episode exclusively on Podcast One. Until then, stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening and watching. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.